Hi. I'm very, very tickled to share some details about a very special podcast that we love. Abridged is a podcast about bridges. It's hosted, produced, and sound designed by our very own Rebecca Seidel. By design, bridges aren't really destinations. We cross them to get from point A to point B. And Abridged is reconsidering that idea, celebrating bridges as gateways to history in between spaces and carriers of memory. Each episode of Abridged is a standalone story. You'll hear about a bridge that suddenly starts singing, a person who married a bridge, ants who build bridges out of their own bodies, and a lot more. Episode one is out now, and you can find Abridged by visiting abridged.xyz or searching for Abridged on the podcast app you're using right now. Just a quick note before we get started. This is an episode about the relationship that a lot of cisgender guys have with their bodies and their fertility. As such, you're going to hear people use a lot of phrases like male body and male fertility. We just want to acknowledge that this language is imperfect and excludes the realities of many people's bodies, including trans people. We also want to let you know that this episode talks extensively about fertility, miscarriage, and fertility treatments. Take care while listening. In the annals of my conversations with men in my life, I'd say the majority of my communication patterns are about pop culture. Lots of movies, music, celebrities, memes. After that, it's probably some level of social observation, things I've watched people doing. The list goes on. But over the past five years or so, The one that's sneaking up the list has been conversations about changing bodies. This vague conversation bucket with men in my life I call medical stuff. It's a wide-ranging sort. Cancer scares have come up a bunch recently. Food intolerances and sensitivities. Pain and stiffness are big ones. A lot has to do with age. Myself and others being in or nearing middle age. Maybe it's just who I am and the kind of work that I do with a show like this that invites men to contact me and say, you'll listen to me about my body. And I'm glad I can be that resource, truly. I've been talking with Kirk and recording our conversations for about two years now, and the most common conversation thread with Kirk has been how he's been masturbating as of late. There was one room where the chair didn't go back at all. It was really just like an office chair, and that was a very difficult situation, speaking for me and my own masturbatory practices. Are you expected to sit in some sort of chair to jerk off? Or is that just a preference? (laughs) (laughs) The reason I have so much intel on Kirk's very private life is that both he and his wife, Monica, want to be parents. My husband, Kirk, and I have been trying to have a kid. We made the decision finally to do IVF. Over the course of two years, Kirk has been going into a facility about as much as two to three times a month to produce sperm samples. He has a lot of opinions on the environment where he's been asked to do this very private activity. 
the place that we now go, I feel like I've upgraded my situation. Just now there's a full recliner and also wireless headphones. The headphones as being important is because these are often like active medical facilities. So for instance, at times a conversation in the lab right behind you that you can hear perhaps a conversation on the other side of the door that the uh, nurse is having with the next gentleman in line and then in some cases in the cubicle right next to you some faint sounds of somebody else you never want to hear about somebody's uh, bologna sandwich uh, which is literally what i heard from the lab once i tried to be timely but it added at least another five minutes while i got over thinking about the, the person's bologna sandwich just I, I you gave me a look like that's my man. <laughs> Monica is the one who actually got in touch with us because Kirk didn't have a person to talk to about, amongst other things, the awkwardness of trying to give sperm samples when you're listening to someone making a lunch order. When you've left the room or come into the building, has there been any verbal or nonverbal acknowledgement with men who are also coming in to do the same thing you're doing? No. It, it would quickly get disgusting, I suppose. You know, hope it's a great sample. I don't know how to, you know, not be too pornographic or too sort of dry scientific. I feel like a nod, though, would be nice. Like, all right, you know, a, a bit of a good luck. But I haven't even uh, had that as of yet. Kirk doesn't have, like, other men to talk to about it. But even though I have friends that have gone through it, I can't talk to everyone about it. We had, like, the same thought, like, other men need help. So, for the first time on this show, we're going to try to make a baby. I'm Mark Bagan, and you're listening to Other Men Need to Never Ever Order a Bologna Sandwich Again. Kirk keeps a red box under the bed with old photos. And that small pile of mementos, there are a few old pictures of patriarchs, namely Kirk's dad and beloved grandfather. One of Kirk's favorite pictures is from a childhood Thanksgiving in front of his home in Michigan, where his grandfather joyfully stands behind an equally joyful young Kirk. Probably one of the last photos I have of, with my grandpa, so it's a nice one. There are also two pictures with his father, who he doesn't have a lot of contact with as an adult. In one photo, an adolescent Kirk sits with his father on Christmas Day, not looking as joyful as he did with his grandfather. But it's a photo that apparently meant a lot to Kirk's dad. This is definitely one that was framed and on his, the side table next to the couch where he always sat. Kirk's come back to these photos recently, especially in the journey to biologically have a kid and the imagined vision of a kid who will probably have some of Kirk and his dad's features, for better or worse. I remember this one because I think uh, when... Monica and I were dating. She, like, I didn't have a picture of my dad on my phone uh, or anything. So I had to go to the uh, red box at that point. 
And I remember the first thing that she was going to say looking at this photo was the obvious thing. Uh, you look exactly like him. And as it was coming out of her mouth, she like stopped it. But then I, I just said, yeah, I know. We look exactly like each other. Everybody always says that. Kirk and Monica have been imagining what their kid would look like for a long time. But by the time I started recording Kirk and Monica's journey in 2021, they'd been trying to have a kid for two years. It's been like something that I wanted and then something that I felt like might not happen. So I think in my like early to mid thirties, maybe had like a little sense of grief that like maybe it wasn't going to happen. Wanting to find the right person. And I really wanted the experience of like raising a child with someone that I love. So it's two Capricorns involved here, which I think is important for people to know. I don't know anything about a lot of signs, little on Capricorn, so what are some of the characteristics? Stubborn. And like the sort of image of like a mountain goat climbing a mountain, this feels like applicable to many things. They tried acupuncture and Chinese herbal supplements for both Kirk and Moni, intercourse, timed intercourse. The doctor will like tell you like, okay, so you should have sex tonight and you should have sex tomorrow. Like we will get prescribed to have sex during my cycles, which is funny. They've had one IVF cycle and four IUIs. IUI, like the turkey baster. Most IVF narratives focus on women's experiences and their bodies. In fact, there aren't many resources for the non-caring partner and limited spaces for men to have this conversation, even if their bodies and interventions with their bodies are also key in the process. What was helpful for me having a support group with other women is like women that had gone through miscarriages, women that had like lost a pregnancy pretty late and then had also had like failed IVFs. Like one wasn't any harder than the other. It's all grief. And that was helpful for me to move through it. And when I've tried to like find personal stories or any research on like male factor, I couldn't find anything. Monica also, as a wonderful organizer of people, tried to organize the women in the women's group who meet every Tuesday and Thursday morning to get their husbands to have their own session. Or partners. Or partners, of course. and. We were told in this sign-up email that we got that we just needed four partners out of all the men and women who are there at the medical center to sign up once, and then we could have a session uh, with the therapist. And I signed up right away, but there never got to be four people who were willing to join. And the search was happening at a time when Kirk found out that he had a pretty jarring procedure awaiting him. There doing this procedure called Tessie, where they surgically extract the semen from Kirk's testicles. The procedure basically entailed cutting open the scrotum, looking inside for existing sperm, and then removing a few very small slices of each testicle as samples. It was recommended to be done to coincide with Monica's egg retrieval so the couple could match the best sperm with the best eggs. When you knew you were gonna have to start doing this process, what went through your mind? 
I certainly didn't know that the male factor is present in about 50% of the cases where people do do IVF. To be honest, I didn't think that much about it. On a deeper level, I don't feel too terribly bothered by it. That, I feel like, was more upsetting to me than it was to you. Like, I had a really emotional response to it, even though it's, like, exactly what they do to me. They're surgically removing eggs from my body, but I think it just felt like we've had so many obstacles every step of the way. It's honestly just part of, like, still not having a true explanation for what it is. It's still kind of just out there. Sometimes it's, like, was something that happened in childhood. Monica has been concerned that I spent too much time in hot tubs as a youth. I was real hot tub sauna guys. This mystery of whether, even for all of the good work that we've done, you can't control nature in some way, even though we're doing this highly advanced thing. There's still like this moment of magic that, that we still need to have happen. Kirk found himself in the position of many men. He didn't just learn what was going on with his body, specifically his reproductive organs. He kind of learned that he had them. I don't know what I've learned about my yucky old body. I never thought about it that much. Hard same, hard same. In my lifetime of medical visits, I've had doctors ask me to cough while checking my scrotum or to feel for a hernia. There have been a few visits to get tested after sexual activity, and I've seen a proctologist once. When it comes to my reproductive health and my body, that's about it. Even though I'm in my 40s, I couldn't tell you much about my reproductive capacities or health. It's not totally my fault, though. While what I'm about to say could sound like I'm rationalizing or passing the buck, there's a long, long history that contributed to men like Kirk and myself being in the dark about our junk. The history of sort of medical thinking about the human body and reproduction has unfolded in such a way that the female body is sort of foregrounded, the male body has been left blurry. We've so much focused on women's reproduction and women's reproductive bodies. We're looking over here and we're not looking at men's bodies and men's reproductive health. Renee Almaling is a professor of sociology at Yale and the author of Gynecology, The Missing Science of Men's Reproductive Health. And that's gynecology spelled G-U-Y, necology. Let me just preface this by saying that what I'm telling you now and what I am writing about in the book really is an American story. Renee's book and research are fascinating because according to some of what Renee points to in the book, the gap of knowledge that American men like Kirk have about their reproductive organs can be traced back to the 19th century. Like today, there was a gap in medical specialties focusing on reproductive health for men versus women. So in the 1880s, groups of scientists and medical professionals decided to dedicate a field of medicine to men's reproductive health. The group of physicians really were trying to address some of the concerns about 
men feeling stigmatized and not knowing where to go and not knowing you know who to trust in terms of information part of their thinking really was like well let's make it clear that this is what we do and they have this conversation about like okay well if we were going to create a parallel specialty to OBGYN, right? So this language again, we're seeing the gender binary here again, that if women have OBGYN over here, we need something for men over here. We are genitourinary surgeons, but let's call our new specialty andrology, sort of parallel gynecology. So these are these Greek roots of like gyna being woman and andro being man. The next step seemed pretty simple. Here was a medical practice that had a viable need and reason for being. But once the practice got labeled and was presented in front of medical peers... They just get made fun of at the medical conferences and in the pages of medical journals. They get made fun of for the idea that they were going to specialize in men's reproductive organs. You know, we're in the Victorian era. Men are not supposed to be having sex outside of marriage. If they have VD, it's because they're having illicit sex and then they're bringing it back and exposing pure and innocent women and children. So the primary condition of men's reproductive organs was about sort of them being diseased and contaminated by venereally transmitted infections. This was the moment at which this group of physicians said, yeah, let's specialize in that. And everybody was like, what are you even thinking, right? People thought of it as far too narrow, even though men are half the population. So this becomes this critical moment where if andrology had succeeded, you would have sort of the kind of same sort of accumulation and accretion of knowledge around men's reproductive bodies that we see about women, but that doesn't happen, right? So I think of the sort of this 1880s attempt to create andrology and its utter failure as a critical moment in the history of reproductive health. And so pointing to it as sort of a moment where it could have gone differently. And I think we would be then living now, potentially in a world where men would hear reproductive health information. Maybe they would be going to a physician. Maybe they would be hearing some of this information in their high school sex classes and health classes, but they don't, right? This is not something we talk about to this day. I'm going to do something here that we've never done before, and that's say the title of the show. It's a first, but here we go. Yes, other men need help. We've needed it for centuries for our reproductive health, and yet even when we know there's a problem that needs to get fixed, that giant bullhorn of masculine insecurity gets in the way. I read a story about, you know, a guy who got thrown against the pommel of his horse. And this led to all kinds of testicular damage that people were very embarrassed about. And so there's just a lot of the reading between the lines of these journal articles and books were about how embarrassed men were um, about having anything wrong with their reproductive organs. And they really resisted talking to anybody. And if they had economic means to see a doctor, much less a specialist, they would often wait for months before they would go in until the pain was so terrible they couldn't take it anymore. Or they sometimes there were these mail order doctors who would say, send in your query and we'll send you something back in a brown paper envelope with no return address. But I think that that sort of cultural thread of embarrassment and stigma and feelings of shame, I think we could probably also draw a line, you know, through 
up to the present day, where there, I think there's still very little open discussion and open acknowledgement of, you know, the kinds of questions and concerns that men do have about their own reproductive organs and more broadly their reproductive health. There's a great quote in the book. The mind is very readily disturbed by any appearance of imperfection in the organs of generation. It just says it all. Thomas Blizzard Curling. He was writing in the 1840s. This is almost 200 years ago. And I almost feel like you could write that today. Put it up on Twitter. It's about 11 days from my testicular biopsy surgery. And I went up today to... Kirk and I began talking more frequently, mostly on the phone and occasionally in person as he neared his surgery. While we may not have andrology, we can try to understand all of this by talking more with each other. I had my audience with the urologist, Dr. K. He expanded at some length about what I'm actually gonna have happen to me. And when Kirk and I talked about what was happening to his body, he didn't hold back. The actual procedure will take an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half. They cut in to the scrotum. They slice off what seems like really, he was listing off a lot of little slices that they need to get of both the left and right testicle for various biopsies, sort of, you know, frozen storage, like little veal cutlets, and also one or two for research uh, that they're doing. So I'm trying to be as generous as I can with slices of my balls for science and for my relationship. He said it's very simple, but there is quite some amount of pain that's experienced after this happens. Another part of this, which Kirk wanted to talk to other men about, the price of this mother procedure and just how out of reach the cost is for so many people trying to get pregnant. The surgery costs $88,000 if it's not covered by insurance, but it still apparently will cost me $2,500 after all of the insurance goes through. The combination of like the insurance thing ramping up the anxiety and then hearing more about the recovery period, it is just yet another way to add pressure to the situation. Kirk's doctor told him he'd be able to walk after two to three days with scrotal support, then wean off the drugs and the groin area ice packs. After that period, he could also take a shower and clean the affected area. The doctor said he could be fully back to normal after a week. Our bad luck that we met when we did the ages that we were. We could have started this 10 years ago. God knows the brood that could have emerged, but uh, we're, we're here and now. So it's all about this pregnancy for me. About a week before the procedure, Kirk gave me the first positive update, and it was a financial one. The woman who works for my urologist just wrote me on Monday and said, yeah, I called up the insurance company and yelled at them, and you're good to go so I can you know, begin to strategize about what kind of ice pack I want to use. Even though, on the surface, 
Kirk's been really cool about everything. This had to be stressful. How could surgery and testicular surgery at that not be worrying? And this is another time where men like Kirk could use a space to talk to other men about their experiences, or yes, with a podcast and with a podcast host. How anxious are you? I'm always feeling anxious, but I think right now it's just about this regular day-to-day. How's it going? Um, pretty good. Pretty good. On the morning of the surgery, I met up with Kirk to check in and accompany him and Monica to their appointment. It was close to 5 a.m. on a spring day early enough in the season to still need to wear something long-sleeved. So did you sleep last night? Uh, I did not sleep very well. What I realized was that you're not allowed to drink water, and I obsessively have sips of water, so I kept waking up. Like, I woke up a couple times before midnight because that was my deadline, so I kept sipping water until I couldn't anymore. And then Kirk shared something with me that I found absolutely delightful. Over the last few months, during the tough moments, Kirk's put on headphones and listened, on repeat, to the 1990 hit from Go West, The King of Wishful Thinking. Up until this moment, it had been a private way of getting through the whole process. I've been trying to get that pep in my step. I have not created, you know, I should have conceived of a conception playlist or something. I feel like the, um, the sonic landscape of IVF might be underexplored. Right before I could examine this listening habit further, Monica joined us to head over to Kirk State with the doctor. Oh, and here's Monica. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. We took a cab together, mostly quiet. It was very early. We all saw the sunrise together. Um, could you actually drop us off here, wherever it's safe for you to pull over? We got out together, although I did not accompany them into the hospital. Thank you for coming, Mark. If you think about it, interviewing with somebody, it, you know, takes some of the distraction, uh, is, is appreciated. He's not supposed to make any important decisions for 24 hours. I hope choosing something from your Netflix view is not considered an important decision. <sighs> A few days into recovery, I heard from Kirk. Dr. K came into the room and uh, said the operation went perfectly well, that he took five biopsies from each testicle and said that all of the sperm uh, was seemingly like infinitely better than it is when it comes out through the other end. So he's probably happy that like his theory was correct. It seems like there's been a long road to get to a place where it's like, here's something that's actually like, you know, solving the infertility issues. He made a comment about we're going to freeze four of the samples for each side. You guys will be able to have as many children as you would like, meaning from this sample. I'm putting all my focus on getting pregnant anyway that that happens. A few weeks after this call, 
Kirk let me know that Monica had had her hopefully last IVF treatment. They'd been to this point before, and it was still a very, very uncertain future for the success of this pregnancy. Doctor said that Monica should have a glass of wine uh, yesterday after the transfer. So had a glass of wine and french fries apparently are good luck. Well, I think that's the title of your new Spotify Get Pregnant playlist. <laughs> wine and french fries. I've been uh, on my little walks around the block, have my headphones on, and so I always get the king of wishful thinking coming through the, the cans. So we waited a bit and waited. And then there was news. Here we are in week six. Monica went in, got the um, blood drawn, and then at maybe one or two that afternoon, she burst out of the room where she was working and into the table where I was working and was pulling the headphones out of her phone. And it was Nurse Phyllis on the line saying that the blood test indicated that we were pregnant. I'm ecstatic to hear this. How are you guys feeling? <laughs> it's very happy as a factor of, you know, this is a positive uh, pregnancy test. It's a little one the size of a poppy seed. <laughs> so I think it's maybe an immediate awareness of, okay, that's so great, but there's a long way to go uh, before we have a baby. Apparently we have three more weeks with our reproductive endocrinologist who we've been working with this whole time. And then I think it's first week in July, we graduate to a regular pregnancy OBGYN. I think then maybe that's the stage that we start really locking in, you know, to the important stuff like what astrological sign will the baby be, things like that. Many weeks later, after receiving this news, we got together to see how Kirk and Monica were feeling. You're like psychologically like protecting yourself because you know there are like no guarantees. I'm trying to like at times just embrace this is what we wanted insofar as like everything's really healthy, but there's still a long ways to go. How does Kirk look to you as future dad? I know he's going to be a great dad, I think. I have always wanted kids and have always been really curious about what that experience would be like and like at the deeper level of like love and partnership when the person that I'm with, like I would get to see them be a father. After spending all this time having some place to share his worries and curiosities about his fertility journey, I asked Kirk what his takeaways were. I just, you know, have appreciated this venue to discuss things just because it's been I think harder for me to bring people into the process so you know I'm just thankful <laughs> there's some record of it it's I still think there's something there that's like guys just don't talk about this it would just feel hard to bring up Still waiting in these early stages of a pregnancy, 
I wondered if the lyrics of a 90s hit were still working as Kirk's inspiration, and if Monica knew anything about this private habit. What has Kirk's theme song been through all of this? Oh, Monica doesn't know. What has your theme song been? You have to guess one. Why is the first thing that came to mind Eye of the Tiger? Do you even know the song, The King of Wishful Thinking, by the band Go West? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know that song? It's on a breakup mix I have. Oh. (laughs) That's good. If you really listen to the lyrics, it's a bit of a breakup thing, right? If you just go by the title of the song, I think it's, you know, positive. I would have never guessed that. The king of wishful thinking. If we were to see most recently played or how many times the song was played in some kind of algorithm, uh, Kirk algorithm, what do you think that number would be? 75 to 100 times. Really? Probably. You have to check back in in January 2021 when Spotify will tell him exactly how many times he listened to it. And when Kirk suggests that the child's name be Go West. Yesterday when you said wow, or did you say guau? Did you say wow or did you say guau? Guau guau, like Bernabe, like Bernabe, guau guau. If you couldn't tell, that's Kirk, Monica, and their son Joaquin on the day of his first birthday. Joaquin, I apologize. I didn't wish you happy birthday when you're up from four to five. That's probably why you were so upset. Daddy didn't say happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Joaquin. Happy birthday to you. And now we blow, we blow. Whoa, Papa! This episode was written, hosted, and executive produced by Mark Pagan and was produced by Ben Goldberg and Navani Otero with production help from Sierra Franco. Our season's lead producers are Ben, Caitlin May Burke, and Rebecca Seidel. Navani is our producer. Shanice Tendall is our associate producer. Rebecca is our lead engineer. Ben is our lead editor. Our researchers this season are Bay Wang and Shanice Tendall. Tuck Woodstock is our sensitivity listener. Noho Felder is our intern. Season four production mascots are Soka, the furry baby, and the late sweet pity pig named Lena. Oh, if you listen closely, you can hear her snoring in some of the tape this season. 
Original music this season comes from Fulton Street Music Group, composed by Ed Duran, produced by Alex Fulton, with additional instrumentation by Ryan Chamberlain and Liam Moore, as well as original music from Blue Dot Sessions. Season four illustrations, done by the magical hands of Daniel De La Huerta. Special thanks to everyone who shared their fertility journeys with us over the course of making this episode. And do you want to join an extended version of the Other Men community this summer? Sign up for our weekly newsletter at markpagan.substack.com, where you'll get weekly stories and interviews and short films and suggestions for what to read, listen, and react to in the world of masculinities. Sign up at markpagan.substack.com. We will be back next week with our last episode. And until then, adios, ciao, ciao, bye. You are a parent now to a 14 or 15 months old? 16. Are you still listening to King of Wishful Thinking? I am. I am. I listened to it today, of course, because I knew that we'd be meeting. It's fallen off like the on-repeat list, but it's always there. I'm still looking into getting the right T-shirt of it. I need to get that shirt, but it's, uh, it's hard to find a good retro uh, T-shirt these days.